Welcome to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast dedicated to being publicly curious about creativity, commerce, and culture. Hosted by myself, Nikita Walia, a brand builder and strategist with over a decade of experience. Together, we'll explore the many dimensions of modern brand building and how cultural codes evolve to build new models for commerce. I'm excited to share my conversation with today's guest, Alex Russell. Alex is the founder and CEO of Nothing Special, and he's also working on one of the world's first independent original Kava media projects, Nothing Special Presents. He has been a blank client for many years, and I'm really excited about what he's been building, how he's been using food science and ancient culture in novel ways, and how he's really a pioneer in the no-alcohol, sober-curious movement. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Alex. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. I feel like we have known each other for so long. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Nikita. Uh, We have known each other for a while, and this is a natural next step, getting in the podcast game, the two of us, or at least you hosting me. I know. It's kind of crazy. You were like our second client like officially that like you know we weren't working with another agency or anything so I feel like we go way way back we do amazing so you know because I've known you for almost three years now I think I know your story really really well but I would love for you to share sort of your career journey from graduating from UVA to working in finance to now launching a brand sure happy to share I'll try to keep it brief So I'm from the DC area, went to Virginia, UVA for undergrad, had some family that went there and did finance and environmental science. So kind of an interesting double major, which I liked because the worlds were so different. The people in, you know, the the business school were so different from the people in environmental sciences. And I guess that was kind of the trend moving forward is I had a, a wide range of interests and I wasn't really sure where I'd fit in. Eventually I found entrepreneurship, but came out of UVA was fortunate to get a scholarship to Cambridge from UVA in the UK to do political and economic theory. So I did a master's there. And that was where I deferred my investment banking start in New York, doing consumer retail M&A at Lazard. And that experience abroad really got me thinking, well, okay, maybe there is more than the finance world. Maybe I, I shouldn't just go into investment banking like a lot of other peers of mine in the business school at UVA. But I went into it. I, I love New York. I was excited to move to New York, started in investment banking, but relatively quickly figured out it wasn't for me. That being said, I fell in love with consumer retail and brands and early stage brands at that. I worked with big companies like Anheuser-Busch InBev, advising them or more doing the PowerPoint and Excel grunt work. But I realized I didn't want to be the advisor to the big companies. I didn't want to work at the big company in corporate development. I didn't even really want to be the private equity person. I was really into early stage. Like, What about that founder who sold her company to AB InBev? That looks intriguing. And with that focus, as I was nearing the end of my stint, I was looking for more entrepreneurial, early stage opportunities, which was not really what most of my peers were doing. They were going into hedge funds, private equity. So with that in mind, I was in Austin, Texas at a music festival, ACL, had a fun weekend with a UV friend of mine who lived there. And he said, hey, I have the perfect thing for you to relax before your flight back to New York. Took me to a kava bar. And this is the first time I was exposed to kava. This is late 2018. And I was so intrigued right away because the CBD was blowing up at this time. And I was like, why is CBD everywhere? I'm trying it, but I'm not getting any effects. It's not really living up to its promise. 
it's sort of being shoved down our throats in tincture form and beverage form and topical form. Meanwhile, I see all these people at the Kaba bar. I never heard of Kaba. And they're drinking this muddy water looking beverage. It doesn't look like it'll taste good. And there's all types of people, a wide range of demographic there. And I said, okay, well, I have to try it. And the taste wasn't that great, bitter, earthy, but it was the effects I felt. First, a mouth numbing sensation. And then about five to 10 minutes later, this it's really hard to describe, but a sense of relaxation without being impaired or high. So kind of the promise of CBD, right? To relax without impairing you. At that point on, everything changed in a way. I was pretty blown away by Kava and said, okay, well, why isn't Kava everywhere? It actually relaxes you. I like to say it's the opposite of coffee. So when you drink coffee, you are energized, but not high or drunk or inebriated. Kava is the opposite. You drink Kava, you're relaxed but still clear thinking. So I said, this is really cool. Let me learn as much as I can about Kava. And I went back to New York, went to all the Kava bars in New York City. There are about eight. And I was still very intrigued. And I had saved up some vacation time at my job and said, look, let's take a vacation slash Kava research trip to the Pacific Islands where Kava comes from. The Kava beverage is made from the Kava roots, the roots of the Kava plant which has been grown for thousands of years in Fiji, Vanuatu, Hawaii, Tonga, all these Pacific Islands. So I, I went on that journey to the Pacific Islands and I can, I can stop there and, and hear your thoughts or I can continue. So obviously like you start <laughs> with this music festival experience, have like a tr- sort of semi-transformative experience with Kava and then you go to Fiji. When you're in Fiji, is that like the aha moment where you realized this is what you want to do? Yeah. So most people know Fiji. And in Fiji was my first stop, LAX to Fiji. I did like a little bit of Kava stuff there, but I would say the aha moment really came in Vanuatu, which I I consider myself pretty good geography. I barely knew Vanuatu. It's way out there. It's a small island nation, former French and British colony that got independence in 1980, 300,000 people, GDP of $1 billion a year. So really undeveloped. And I worked with like a travel agency. It was kind of sketchy. I didn't know what to do. I ended up staying in like this shack essentially for a few nights. (laughs) Eventually I found my way to like the one hostel in Port Vila, the capital. And I started to make friends with a couple of guides, if you will, through the travel agency. They they were hired by the travel agency. We said, screw the travel agency. I'll just hang out with these guys. They kind of took me under their wing. They're a bit older than me. They're from Pentecost Island in Vanuatu. They loved how I was wanting to learn about Kava and they showed me everything. So I went to a bunch of Kava bars in Port Vila. I then did a flight to Luganville on the island of Santo, where there's also a bunch of kava bars as well. And I met with kava exporters. I met with kava farmers. I met with professors who studied kava. I met with the head of the kava association in Vanuatu. So I just tried to learn as much as I could. And it was over the course of those three weeks where I was like, wow, there's something here. And despite the internet and seemingly endless information, there's actually still some information that people don't know, which is... Kava is a bona fide social beverage that is enjoyed by thousands, if not millions of people over its history. And if an American business person were in Vanuatu, they'd be like, wow, this is pretty cool. Like, screw the cannabis hype. There's actually something real and lasting with Kava. Why aren't we focused on Kava? Why haven't I heard of Kava? So it was validating because you actually see Kava's influence and power and ability to make a difference in people's lives firsthand. I mean, for me, it was drinking the fresh kava. That is the key difference. And that's, I guess, the aha moment. Kava beverage is uh, made from the roots, again, of the kava plant. And the roots, when they're fresh and turn it into kava beverage, you get a way better kava experience. So better tasting, better effects, just 
10 times better experience overall than the American kava bar experience where they import the dried kava root. So it's almost like comparing low-quality instant coffee in a can, that's the current American kava bar experience, or the Vanuatu fresh kava experience being sort of high-quality, artisanal, freshly brewed coffee. So I said, wow, this is the kava experience that could appeal to a more mainstream American consumer. Obviously, it had success with the mainstream in Vanuatu. There's something here with kava, and it could be positioned potentially as an alcohol alternative. And we can talk about the alcohol alternatives trends and what I've seen there. But that's kind of what I came away from that trip with is kava is very special. And it is this overlooked gem. And we can go deep here on kava like no one has before. Yeah. And when you were sort of on that trip, did you ever sort of like talk about with some of the people you met, like making this like a bigger business? And were they kind of like, oh, no, this guy's coming in from America, like taking our tradition? Or were people like really generally like excited to share this history? Yeah. It's funny because it's just so different in the Pacific Islands and what they think about is very different than what Americans think about. First of all, kava is already commercialized. So there's people in the Pacific, there's a 10 million plus kava trade. At one point, it was $100 million plus within the Pacific Islands. So kava is already commercialized in Vanuatu, Hawaii, New Caledonia, etc. It was more just people were very excited to share kava because they're proud of it, just like the French are of their wine right? Kava is to the Pacific Islands like wine is to the Mediterranean. And Vanuatuans in particular think they have the best kava, just like maybe the French think they have the best wine or the Italians, etc. So they were very excited to have an American come for so long. That's very rare in Vanuatu, very rare to be so interested in kava in Vanuatu, at least for an American visiting. So they were all for me sharing. And I just really came at that point from I am ignorant on kava. I want to learn as much as I can. And I think people really appreciated that perspective. Of course, my business mind, still being an investor banking, was running, right? But I'm a very curious person. And I think this is where my prior experience came into play. Environmental science, interest in nature, interest in just capitalism more generally from a broader view was kind of going into overdrive. I know since like you've been working on nothing special to beverage for several years. How did you go from this trip to the early sort of formulations to now you've been doing like serious food science and innovation for like almost two years now? What was that like? Well, yeah. So I I basically came back from Vanuatu again with this vision to bring the premium world-class kava experience to America in a way it had never been done before. Again, it already existed in America, but not in a good way. And I started to dive right in, again, coming from a place of extreme ignorance, thinking, oh, it would be relatively easy to make this kava beverage. The problem was there was no high-quality kava available in America. So I kind of went the path of most resistance over the past few years, starting with low-quality ethanolic extracts of kava, which have some safety issues. I can talk about that and some competitors and other kava beverages still use them. Then moving to like instant kava, just like an instant coffee. But again, that wasn't high enough quality all the way to what we're doing now, which is importing fresh frozen kava root from Hawaii, Tonga, and Vanuatu. We did a ton of legal work and USDA work to get that all set up. The first ever fresh frozen kava imports into America. And with that kava, people say, oh, you just formulate the beverage, right? That's not hard. You just do it on your countertop. Yes, we can do that. And and with the fresh kava we make allows us to do that. But then the issue is, well, how do you make this shelf stable and safe microbially and produce at scale? And that has been a lot of the food science challenge. There are no kava experts, right? Just like Beyond Meat, 
When they started, they had to figure out how to make a good tasting plant-based burger and scale that production process. Oatly had to do something similar with their dairy alternative. We're taking the same approach. Let's be the food science experts for Kava. There's an opportunity to do that because no one else is. And it's, it's a challenge and opportunity, right? I can't just hire a Kava maker like one could a barista or someone to make kombucha. So it's hard, but then we have developed some proprietary processes in consultation with folks in the Pacific Islands who know the most about kava to bring the fresh kava experience, which is safe and efficacious to America, but in a tasty and shelf-stable form. Yeah. And are you, you know, working on making like interesting flavors? Are you making the kava sort of flavor itself, the star? What have you sort of done there? I feel like this whole movement away from soda and alcohol has like, for better or worse, created so many beverage brands. I'd love to hear more about sort of what you're doing on a taste perspective. Yeah, taste is king. Absolutely. And that's, as Vincent LeBeau, sort of the father of modern kava science says, you don't really drink kava for the taste, you drink it for the effects. So we're not competing on taste. We're competing on effects, which arguably the kava effects are superior to alcohol's effects for certain occasions. The nothing special occasion, if you will, like Tuesday night after work, alcohol is not really the ideal. You might have a hangover the next morning. It kind of throws off your, say, your workout routine for the week. Kava doesn't do that at all. You can go to the Pacific and see it firsthand. And you also see in the Pacific, people don't really sip kava like they do alcohol, other beverages. They really just down it to drink it quickly, avoid the, the bad taste and just get the effects. That being said, just like kombucha or matcha or yerba mate, when people brought those interesting beverages to America, they adapted them for the American consumer and palate. We're doing the same with kava. So... We are really leaning into the traditional kava experience. We love that. We want to steward that. But we're also aware that Americans might not like this bitter taste. It's very acquired. Some people never really come around to the taste. So we're launching with a couple other flavors, a ginger forward flavor, and then a chai forward flavor. We'll have some other ones in the pipeline as well. But starting with those, uh, we've got some great feedback from folks that love ginger, for example. And they said, okay, the ginger alone makes me love the taste. And then others actually like the more traditional kava flavor we have that's just lightly sweetened. They like the bitterness. So different consumers like different things, but we're making it more palatable for most. You've done sort of like the R&D side of the house. How have you like really worked on, you know, taking this rich heritage, giving it a lot of respect, but then also helping people sort of understand where something like kava fits into their lives? Like how have you sort of started to like pull the bones of this brand together? Yeah, just like the research and development for the, the product, the brand work has been a long time coming. You know, originally we worked with a great agency to basically create a brand that got at the Kava experience. The Kava experience is a pretty Zen one. I'm really inspired by Wabi Sabi philosophy, sort of celebrating the imperfect as beautiful, the in between, the analog, sort of the murky. These things actually are where truth and beauty lie, as opposed to the hyper modern minimalist smoothness of the digital age. And when you, yeah, when you drink coffee, you literally enjoy nothing special. You enjoy the ordinary, you enjoy the mundane. You don't feel the need to reach for your phone. You don't feel the need to check your notifications. That to us is very special because the digital world is encroaching on our daily lives more than ever. So it's, I think, a very powerful thing. It's something people seek to, how can I actually get away from this digital world for a bit and just enjoy sort of heritage reality, cooking dinner, 
hanging out with a friend, reading a book, holding my attention in the moment. Again, it sounds cliche, enjoy the present moment, right? But Kava actually allows you to do that. So we created a brand around that. Enjoy nothing special, right? We are tweaking our brand a little bit because what we're realizing is we don't want our brand to get in the way of Kava. Kava requires some education and Kava is also just so rich in its own right. We've actually essentially developed a media arm from a couple of trips we did to the Pacific following my initial trips to Fiji and Vanuatu. We went to Hawaii in 2021 and created original Kava media, uh, essentially a 160 page Kava table book and short documentary films on Kava. That was an amazing experience with a, a team from New York and, and also locals in Hawaii. The same thing in New Caledonia, a French territory in the South Pacific earlier this year where folks drink kava because, again, kava is to the Pacific Islands like wine is to the Mediterranean. There's different terroirs, there's different types of kava, there's different cultures surrounding it. It's not just this monolithic kava. There's so much variety to it and diversity that we want to show, not tell, right? Let's just show how great kava is. We are nothing special. Kava is special. So that is where the media comes in. We want to show Kava. We're doing some work internally to figure out, okay, well, how do we get all this across to the consumer? We're a branded product. We have this Kava media. It's a new category. There's a lot to a lot of messaging. We're working on uh, tweaking that, but we feel great having gone deeper than anyone. You know, there is no professional grade Kava media. And there's a lot of folks that have just made money off Kava, which is fine, but no one has bothered to showcase the stories behind Kava. And we think they're so fascinating and interesting from this sort of remote, underappreciated part of the world, the Pacific Islands, that let's lean into this Kava story because it's it's so powerful in its own right. Absolutely. And I think, too, like in some ways, even though the product hasn't come out, you are so ahead of now what has become such a mass trend of, you know, trying to find alternatives to alcohol. I think particularly coming out of like the first two years of the pandemic, I won't really say it's over, it's still going. But I think a lot of people started drinking very, very heavily early 2020. And now they're like seeking, you know, the kins and the Gia's of the world. How have you sort of seen that shift towards functional beverages, non-alcoholic libations, as you sort of call them? Yeah, totally. I'll say it for, I, I love alcohol. Don't me wrong. Love alcohol. And I think alcohol is an amazing social beverage that will always be drank. It's literally shaped human history. And in particular, it's amazing for the weekend. That being said, obviously, health and wellness, health and wellness, quote unquote, I kind of hate the term, is the dominant macro trend in food and beverage. People want to be healthy. They're looking for food and beverage that helps them accomplish their, their fitness or health and wellness goals. Alcohol doesn't really fit into that, right? So people are looking for alternatives. And what we've seen is Yes, there are some amazing, great alternatives out there. Some people have really created great tasting non-alc beers, for example, or some really great hard kombuchas that are like low alcohol and give you a little buzz, right? But healthier overall. The way I see it is the two main categories of alcohol alternatives are non-alc drinks with effects like kava, like THC, and then non-alc drinks with no effects. So just like non-alc beers, wine, spirits, and the problem with those two categories that I've seen is for the non-alc drinks with effects, consumers are kind of let down because if they have one of these adaptogenic, neurotropic, botanical drinks that are promising effects or euphoria or whatnot, they're not really feeling it. So they'll try the beverage, but then they don't buy it again. And then they kind of stick to their original drinking habits. Or they have these weed drinks, which are, again, it's funny, there's hundreds of millions of venture capital going to weed, but it's still federally illegal. But people will try Weed drinks for the legal in certain states, California, Colorado, et cetera. 
But then some ones are like too high for too long. That was kind of my experience with some of them. I, I mean, I enjoy marijuana sometimes, but more rarely and not for too long every time. And a weed high is not for everybody, right? So kava is really well positioned, I think, for the non-alk drink with effects. That to me is the true alcohol alternative because these non-alk drinks with no effects, they're great. I love some of them. Again, these non-alk beers, some non-alk aperitifs, but ultimately... I call it the like LaCroix test or the Spindrift test or the kombucha test. Why would I buy this non-alk beer or drink that is like three times more expensive per serving than a good kombucha that I already like or a Spindrift seltzer that I already like? So, and I think a lot of consumers are like, shake their head. They're like, this is stupid. This is basically just herbal water. I'll just have my water or kombucha. So to me, the non-alk category with effects is quite interesting. And I think Cobb is well positioned there. As consumers continue to trial all these drinks, but not really repeat, purchase, or ritualize them. I think kava is what people are looking for when they are looking to ritualize a new drink seriously instead of alcohol. Do you think like the trend is here to stay around non-alcoholic beverages? I know you mentioned your sort of general feelings around health and wellness and trends. Do you think this is one that's going to be enduring or are people sort of going to go back to like heavy and binge drinking and then there'll be another health trend? Totally. Well, I like to say kava is timeless and not trendy. And just look at, go to the Pacific Islands. That's all you have to do. And you'll see for yourself. So we're not too worried about trends. We think kava is timeless, like a kombucha or yerba mate or matcha that go beyond just pretty branding or trends, right? So we're not too worried about that. And to be fair, I do think the alcohol alternative or non-alc trend is here to stay. Maybe it won't live up to expectations. You know, Maybe it'll only be for certain types of consumers, whatever. But I think you look at the most interesting data, I think from younger people, one of our investors actually shared a book with me called Mega Mistakes that says, the way to predict the future is to look at what younger generations are doing because what people do in their 20s often sticks with them for the rest of their lives. So millennials are drinking less than Gen X. Gen Z is drinking less than millennials. We'll see what the next generation does. But drinking less alcohol does seem to be a trend. And there's going to be a need for drinks beyond that. We'll see how it shakes out exactly. But we feel great with Kava riding that wave. Of course, that's a great catalyst. There's a lot of non-alc spirit shops, uh, one in particular that raised a nice round of funding. So there's a lot behind the trend. But again, we're leaning on Kava's timelessness more than anything else. Yeah. And I think the other thing that always happens with a lot of wellness trends is there's a lot of people that bring a lot of like Eastern sciences and medicines and traditions and like goopify them, sanitize them, throw some like minimalist oppressive branding on them and then just forget about where it came from. And what I think I really admire about you is that I think in every step of your journey, you've been so adamant in really working with the originators of Kava culture. And I think, you know, if so many more brands did that, they would be more endearing and have more meaning and more respect. Thank you. Appreciate that. To me, it comes down to relationships. I've made a lot of strong relationships in the Pacific and I want to bring a world-class Kava experience to America and basically outside of the Pacific, generally the right way. Kava deserves that. And if, if we don't do it, there's malevolent actors that are going to put profit over everything else. Uh, we've already seen that with sort of the 1990s Kava boom that destroyed the industry when there are claims of liver damage due to low quality extracts. People just wanted to get the highest yield from the Kava. They didn't care about quality. They didn't care about sustainability, just profit. So we're thinking long term. And I think if you think long term, you can think about things beyond profit. 
And yeah, like what's funny is people forget that coffee came from like Ethiopia, right? And now coffee is global. And people forget that teas came from East Asia, right? These things all started regionally. And now we see Starbucks, we think, oh, this is so American. Like it's American, like coffee's American. But no, actually coffee is from this part of the world. All these substances have a certain context. And some are just so ingrained within American capitalism, if you will, that we don't even think of them in their local context. Some brands try to show the connection in their supply chain, what have you, sort of after the fact. But no brand is really starting, I think, but beyond a few, maybe in Yerba Mate, Kombucha, et cetera, no brand is really highlighting, again, like you said, the originators of these interesting plants and ingredients. And we're coming from that basis point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think switching gears a little bit, I think sort of the broader lifestyle connections of nothing special, the brand of this like big sort of like anxious moment we live in, etc. Like how did that part of the brand come about? Like resistance to social media and digital and being overly connected? And how do you sort of balance the tension of like having to use those channels to market a brand? and your own sort of like strong feelings about them. I know we've had many conversations about that. Uh, it's something I think about all the time. What I love about Kava, it does tie into my passion for not being anti-tech, but being tech wary. And this is, I think, where my year abroad really helped me think about this. I wrote a thesis on sort of platform capitalism. This is when Airbnb and Uber in 2016, 2017, were like flouting a bunch of local laws. They were causing a bunch of issues just sort of feral neoliberalism at work, venture capital dollars that are putting IRR over the pursuit of basically improving the human condition. And that's how I look at technology and capitalism generally is this should be a tool for us. Capitalism is embedded within human society. It's not just we're beholden to the free market. And again, I'm a capitalist. I'm an entrepreneur, right? But capitalism is extremely powerful. And, and technology, I like to combine them, techno-capitalism, right? Technological change is being fueled by capitalism. So you get technology that serves capitalism and that capitalism doesn't often serve humanity. There's a quote from E.O. Wilson I like. I love the folks at the Center for Humane Technology. They, they love this quote as well. Basically, it says, humans have primitive hindbrains that are driven by the lowest of our thinking, food, sex, etc. Then we have medieval institutions we've created. Look at the U.S. government currently, not the best functioning, one would argue, and other institutions as well, NGOs, etc., that have a lot of conflicts of interest. And then we have godlike technology thrown into the mix. We have to be really careful about that godlike technology because humans are special, but we're also not that special. And we're actually quite influenced by simple dopamine hits on Facebook, as we've seen with young girls being depressed from social media, as we've seen with political elections being influenced by social media. These are extremely powerful tools that are tapping into our primitive high brains. Let's think critically about how we want to shape the future instead of just saying technological process is inevitable. This is what's coming. That's the end of story. Well, what we've seen is what's coming is actually not that great for the human condition. A lot of technologists will say, well, we got to continue to improve technology to prevent the asteroid from hitting. One would say the asteroid is already hit because of that technology. Do not let the means to the end screw up the end fully, right? Like this is supposed to be a tool. Technology has now become an end. Let's focus on making it a good means to the end. And what I love about Kava, it's a small way, in my experience, I think others, it's a small way to resist that digitization, that all-encompassing metaverse that we feel ourselves in more and more every day. When you drink Kava, you literally do not want to look at your phone. Now, I think that's extremely powerful. 
you actually enjoy sort of these nuanced activities where you don't get the same stimulation, just like a shower feels great. Cooking dinner takes on new meaning. The nothing becomes special, right? That's what we're saying. So it's kind of a weird combination. I, I never thought like, oh, a beverage could actually be doing something more than that. I mean, at the end of the day, we are just a beverage, right? But I'd like to think if people are able to drink kava and get off their phones for an hour every night, and look, it doesn't, you can still check email, you can still take care of your kids, you're not going to be hungover the next morning, it doesn't disrupt your routine, that multiplied by a lot of people actually does make a meaningful difference in the world. And I think, like you said, these platforms really thrive on exploiting like our sort of like lowest instincts. And so, you know, to have something to like dull that instinct and like bring people like back to themselves and back to their center is so important because I feel like right now, and especially in the last two and a half years, when like for many people, like their phone was the only way of connecting with other people, you know, a lot of like single people in New York, like their friends move, blah, blah, blah. Like all of those things were taken away from you. So yeah, like your friends are the people on your phone. And now that people are connecting a little bit more, I think it's nice to like remember what that's like and have a social battery again and having something like Kava to like really empower the experience, I think could be really powerful. Yeah, that's the thing is like, not all technology is bad. Technology can be amazing, but we have to be careful because technological changes. I know you and I both love Neil Postman, the late Neil Postman, great scholar of media and technology. Technological change, sort of once it's out of the genie's bottle, there's no changing it. And then it's also ecological change that comes from that genie being out of the bottle. There was no Europe before the printing press and then the same Europe with the printing press after. It was a fundamentally different Europe. And we've seen it's a fundamentally different world post iPhone. That changed everything. And I would argue it's quite dystopian to see everyone just scrolling on their phones. And you know, maybe it'll be the metaverse headset coming soon. Is this the future we want? Yes, there are benefits and there are negatives like there are with everything. But as we've seen and with recent history, the negatives are quite large. And I like to say we have everything we already need. We already have the core things that we love about the human experience. These are like seeking wisdom, adventure, reading a new book, like these things that are like deeply human, we can still enjoy that without technology. So yes, social media can be great during a pandemic and you connect with people and all those things. But we have to think long term here, given we're playing with such powerful technology. And that's why I I, I don't know, I, I get scared with look at my young cousins who are on TikTok. How can you have an educated populace? How can you have a informed voter if you're just being fed what the algorithm wants you to to think? It's getting scary out there. And I think we need to get back to basics, again, to this heritage reality that has served us so well for so long, you know, RIP 1990s. I wish I lived in that decade. I feel like that was peak humanity in many ways. But again, not all technology is bad, but think critically. And that's what's so crazy is technology is impairing our ability to think critically. It's like a meta problem. We can't have collective thinking anymore because we're screaming at each other in 200 characters on Twitter. Not, not to make another plug for Kava, but what's so cool about Kava too is historically had been used to smooth over disagreement. So when folks were having political or community disagreement, they would drink Kava and come to a compromise. And if only we could have that, you know, if only folks in Congress maybe could share some Kava together, maybe it would make a difference. I don't know. Absolutely. You know, what you said about the iPhone, I don't think you've ever, I don't know if you've seen that statistic that like gum sales have never like rebounded since the invention of the iPhone, because like most people would buy gum, like bored waiting in line at the grocery store. 
And I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's like a staggering percent that like gum sales haven't rebounded because like now that occasion is you checking your phone instead of buying gum or like a People magazine. Wow. Fascinating. We've had the erosion of the negative space in our lives, right? Which is this like boredom, this nothingness. The great book, How to Do Nothing, gets at this fully. There's actually something very valuable in that. And now if we're just constantly stimulated, we're losing something. Technologists only tell you what there is to gain. They never tell you what is being lost. And we've lost that negative space. And I'm not saying go be a monk and just meditate all day, although that can be powerful. But there's something to be said about reclaiming that negative space, that nothingness, where there's actually something very valuable there that we've lost. Yeah, 100%. And I think even on the social media and media literacy front, I think it's a little scary how people, because of the ways they've been introduced to the internet, like I find especially with like older generations and then like very young people that because they're introduced to the internet as this like thing that has all the answers, they tend to sort of believe everything. And I feel like millennials, like speaking to your like 1990s, like it's the best time thing. I think you and I, we really grew up in that inflection point between the VHS to the DVD, between like the flip phone to the iPhone. Like I very keenly like remember those shifts and I remember like having like library class at school and they tell you like, you're not allowed to cite Wikipedia in a paper and how to be skeptical and all of these things. And I don't know that there's that level of media literacy that's existing anymore because no one remembers a time before it. Or if people just aren't being taught that because the internet has just sort of won this battle. No, I hear you. I, I, I do think we're, you, maybe every generation thinks you're unique and special, but from a technology or media literacy standpoint, we have an interesting vantage point having been the bridge between the, the more analog and the digital generations. We've seen both. Man, if young people today think the internet is truth and we're in for a world of pain, I think people have to understand that it really is just a cluster F. There's so many incentives, there's so many motivations. Humanity is complicated. And again, by kind of smoothing it out, making it like this nice little app, you know, everything's fine. You're forgetting about all the context and all the difference in individuals. And there's a term context collapse that I like in particular. You have context when you have a conversation with someone in Vanuatu or you're studying in school, in a classroom, that context is powerful. You can have a sort of a, the true safe space for open debate and conversation. You lose that context when there's millions of people on Twitter, all looking the same, all being forced to fit in this format. It's very dangerous. And this is where I think universities are powerful. Teaching people critical thinking is powerful. So they can say, wait a second, should I actually take the internet as word? Where is the actual source of this fact, this quote unquote fact? Let's go to the primary source. It's these old school things we were taught, right? Like don't cite Wikipedia, cite the primary source, right? Because otherwise you get the craziness we're living in today, which is so devoid of context. Yeah. And I think too, like, Sadly, the framing of the algorithm just like keeps moving the goalposts where like what is the acceptable like sphere of what is cool and okay to say in like one space is different than another. And like those people just keep like reinforcing and making their narratives (laughs) even smaller, which is really dangerous on both sides of the political spectrum, because that's where you just see this insane level of polarization that we live in. And 
you know, I remember when I was in school, we read this like research on how, you know, so many people look at Twitter as like a way to like pulse check what's going on. But in reality, the majority of Twitter users are skewed very far in either political direction. So if you're right wing, of course you get on there and you're like, everyone agrees with me. This is the world. And if you're on the left, you're like, oh my God, everyone that like lives in like Michigan and votes for this person is so dumb, you know, like it, it just keeps like doing that. And I think these platforms have also kind of like sold us this idea that like they're this utility, they're this public square. And if they are that, then I think they have a responsibility to their users and to people to like enforce that. But look what happened when like cafes started in Europe, all the kings got worried. So here we go. (laughs) Although these platforms proclaim to connect us and they're so personal, right? If you actually are in a room with someone, you can't like scream at them and you can't, you're not going to have this vitriol like you have online. I, I think back, I was in this debating society in college. It was nerdy, but it was also fun. There were fun traditions and we would go in on debating, but then we would get drinks right after and everyone was friends, right? And you, you were friends with the people on the other side of the aisle. And I think this is sort of the bipartisanship we, we saw yesteryear that has all devolved into the screaming matches. Because if, again, if you get everyone in a room together, if you are living in heritage reality and not in the digital reality, there's no way for this sort of vitriol to come out. It would be very rare because people's personal sensibilities will prevent them from being assholes. But now people are down to be an asshole because it makes them be favored by the algorithm, which celebrates anything that generates an emotional response, keeps people on the platform longer. Again, why is it that the pursuit of IRR is something, or or, or basically the, the pursuit of Uh, return on capital a la Twitter, preventing reasoned open debate. And that's why I'm actually, I don't know people's thoughts on Elon, but it's like cool, I think that he's like, let's make Twitter private. That could be kind of interesting to have the public square driven by, again, what actually is best for the public square as opposed to what is best for Twitter's shareholders. I don't know what's going to come out of his sale if he's going to be sued, but I think there were a lot of concerns around that. Just I think you know, I remember Twitter between like 20, like not even like 2010, like 2007, eight, whenever Twitter started to sort of like 2013, 14, I kind of like got away from the platform for a while. And I remember like at that time, there was like that first wave of people like pushing back against social. And, you know, there was that big shakeup at like Reddit about their sort of toxic culture. And I think the platforms really like refashioned themselves the last few years. And I think there was like a similar thing at Twitter, where now they've allowed people to have a little bit more, I guess, like say over who responds to them, blah, blah, blah. But you know, it's always interesting to see how like different people like lord over a platform. And I don't know if it really serves us to have the public square have a lord, but here we go. <laughs> the public square shouldn't have a lord. And it also shouldn't be millions of people. Humans evolved to only really have 100 or so people in their lives. It's not natural to have followers in the millions. It's not natural to shape your life around interactions with thousands of people. And again, this is where we go back to the E.O. Wilson quote, we have this godlike technology, but our humanity is not fit with this, right? Like this technology is out of whack with our humanity, which is like close friends, close relationships, like local communities, right? Like there's this decentralization push a la Web3, which is perverse in its own way. 
I'm, I'm more of a fan of the, the local economy, the, the truly analog decentralized. But so many of these platforms, again, they're being pushed as what is next? What is inevitable? The metaverse is coming. This is good for us. Again, we already have everything we need. And we've seen that these new innovations are, are not really innovative in a good way. Yeah, they're really not. And I think, ironically, the thing that's most appealing to a lot of people in Web3 is the idea of community. And like, I've definitely explored it a lot. I think there are a lot of like interesting brand applications for it. Originally, it was like very anti-Web3. But then I was like, you know, like, if I'm going to hate on this thing, I should at least understand it a little bit more. And I think, you know, there are parts that have merit. And I think a part and a lot, a lot of it is a reaction to like traditional social. It's going to be interesting depending on who leads the charge, what the shape of it is. But again, like, why don't we just log off? Why are we putting like logging off on the blockchain? You know? Right. Well, that's the thing is the people who control these platforms, the Silicon Valley elite, their kids are not having, they don't have iPads in their hands. You know, they're not, they're not signing up for Snapchat. Although I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for Snapchat. I do think it's a better form of social media. It's a luxury to be away from a screen. It's a luxury to log off. A lot of people, this is a tool to grease the wheels of capitalism and make people more productive, right? To keep people hooked within a capitalist scheme, aka the attention economy of the social media platforms. So I am wary again, look at the people who are pushing these quote unquote innovations. What are their interests? Is it actually in your interest to better your community via Web3 or is it to enrich them via their unique blockchain or whatever it might be? Again, it's simple. It's, it's getting back to the roots. And that's why I encourage young people to think critically about all this innovation, all this progress, because sometimes it's not really progress. It's putting humanity backwards. Yeah. I always say like innovation and progress for like, the sake of progress and innovation isn't really anything innovative or progressive at all. It's just someone pushing an agenda that they have, whether it's their like techno-capitalist agenda, their techno-fascist agenda, like who knows? But if you follow the money, you always know what the intention is. Well, that's the thing. Money has run, capital has run out of places, arguably, to be put to work. And that's what we saw in the, the world of low interest rates really, I think, drove the metaverse and Web3. Here you're seeing all, all of crypto collapse. And, and again, I think there are beneficial uses, right? It's tough to separate the grift from the actually interesting applications, which I think there are some, but literally low interest rates and an excess of liquidity led to the propping up of Web3, where people go, okay, where can I find my return on capital? Nowhere. Interest rates are zero. Let's fund a metaverse. Let's go for this grand slam home run business where uh, we're going to be the next billionaires, right? We've seen all that fall by the wayside a bit as, as the economy's changed for where we're sitting in 2022, interest rates are up. But that's where I'm like nervous, right? Because what is the end game here with capitalism? Is it really us living in the world of Wally, the Pixar movie, where everything is served to us, right? We're in the Huxleyan dystopia where not the Orwellian one where we have an overlord, although maybe a tech overlord in, in Big Brother, but the Huxleyan one where we have, we're destroyed by convenience, and destroyed by the dopamine hit where we're sitting in our chair, we're fat, or maybe we go on our little Peloton or whatever to, to convince ourselves we're healthy. We get fed food, we get fed media, all this stuff, you know, because it's so easy and convenient. And we see some of it, right? We see some of it, even with like the door dashing and all that. Is that the end game with capitalism? I don't know. I'm doing everything I can to create a world that celebrates our, our heritage reality and the wonders of old school humanity. Absolutely. Well, I am really excited to see Nothing Special launch 
fairly soon. Knock on wood. And it was so, <laughs> I know, I was like, let me not even box you into the <laughs> <laughs> It was so good to catch up with you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. My pleasure, Nikita. Thank you for listening to today's episode. To keep up with me and the podcast, you can follow me on at Nikita on the internet, on Instagram, or keep up with Blank's work at www.workwithblank.com. More next time.